comes to us today from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and reading through verse 19 at the end of the chapter. I invite you to stand up as we honor the reading of God's Word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let us pray. Our Father, your word tells us that if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, How much more will our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we ask you once more for the blessing, the presence, the power of your Holy Spirit among us. We pray that your Spirit's work through the word as it is proclaimed may expose strongholds of falsehood that are in our hearts and may destroy them. May encourage and strengthen what is good and fan into flame that which honors you that is in us, so that it may be your work that is done for the good of your people. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. At a recent town hall event for the Democrat presidential candidates, the now former candidate, Beta O'Rourke, was asked a question by CNN host Don Lemon. The question was, as president, would you seek to impose income taxes on nonprofit organizations? And he mentioned colleges, churches, charities that do not affirm same-sex marriage. Without hesitation, Beto O'Rourke answered this way, quote, yes. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone, any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. So as president, we are going to make that a priority, and we are going to stop those who are infringing upon the rights of our fellow Americans. Now, since that time, Beto O'Rourke has left the race for president. But don't assume that because he is out that this idea is not going to come up again. 
It seems quite plausible that now that he's spoken it in public and now that he's asked us to imagine a future day when colleges, churches, charities are taxed for their doctrinal teachings, we must assume that that will continue to be a matter of discussion. We have a budget meeting tonight. We're proposing a a 2020 budget for our church. Can you imagine in future years under a future presidential administration, what if we have to budget for income taxes? What if we have to budget a certain amount to give to the federal government because they're now taxing us as a form of punishment because of what we teach and believe? That could put significant limits on what we're able to do. For many churches, that could lead to forced layoffs of their staff. That could lead to pulling back on missionary support. For a good number of churches, that could lead to closing their doors. This is the beginning of a discussion that Beta O'Rourke has invited us all to now imagine as a potential future for our churches. And I want you to recognize that what Beta O'Rourke was describing is persecution. We tend to want to be reserved in our use of that term. We want to say, well, persecution, that has to be very intense, violent suffering, torture, death, imprisonment. But that's not the case. Persecution involves any kind of opposition from the unbelieving world that is, that is an attempt to marginalize, to sideline, to limit, or to, to declare that what we believe, what we profess, who we are, is beyond the pale of normal. In Galatians 4.29, Paul speaks of persecution by Ishmael to his brother Isaac. And that's a story where in the Old Testament, it's an older brother mocking and laughing at his younger brother. Paul calls that persecution. And thus, we don't always have to be reserved in the way we speak of it. Persecution is a broad category that involves any kind of attempt to marginalize uh, us for our faith. Now, we are living in a culture where there is an increasing clash between what Albert Moeller calls religious liberty and sexual liberty. Religious liberty, of course, is an ideal we've had uh, from this, the founding of this nation. It's an ideal that, that says that religion is, is freely to be practiced and observed both in public and in private. It's a guaranteed right of all of our citizens. In the meantime, there's a new right that's been advancing in our society, and and Dr. Mueller calls this sexual liberty or erotic liberty, and it's the liberty to pursue perverse sexual practices, not only to pursue them, but to demand that society affirm and bless them. And it becomes clear that these two visions of liberty cannot stand together. One of them will conquer the other eventually. And we need to reckon with the very real possibility that our side might lose. Now, we've won many battles to this point, especially in the courts. And there's much reason to keep fighting, to keep praying, and to keep working toward a society that will protect religious liberty. But we also have to be ready for the alternative. Because the alternative very well may come. And in many contexts, it's already come. So here in this last section of Peter's letter, where he begins a new section, you can, you can tell he begins a new section, he begins with the word beloved. He had just done that earlier at 2.11. 
So here in verse, chapter 4, verse 12, he begins this last section of his letter where he's giving encouraging words to believers in Asia Minor in the first century who were suffering under persecution. And he's encouraging them with words that will enable them to endure. For us today, I don't know if anyone in this room is currently facing persecution or the prospect of persecution in the near future. Whether that be the case or not, the fact remains, we must think rightly about persecution before it comes so that we will be ready when it does. And thus, this letter is a very, very important word to us. We're going to look at what Peter teaches us in this passage and give three words of instruction about how to think about persecution uh, for most of us probably before it happens. And so first, we're going to see in verses 12 to 14 that Peter tells us, rejoice in times of persecution because it is evidence of the Spirit of God upon you. Rejoice in times of persecution because it is evidence of the Spirit of God upon you. Let me remind you again of Beta O'Rourke's words, the last part of what he said. We are going to stop those who are infringing upon the rights of our fellow Americans. Those who oppose the affirmation of same-sex marriage are, in his words, infringing upon the rights of our fellow Americans. It is important for us to understand that those who persecute us do not see what they're doing as evil. They see it as good. They see it as standing up for a cause that is just and right. We are the ones who are evil. We are the ones who are infringing on the rights of our fellow Americans. We are the ones who are oppressing, who are stuck in a bigoted past. We are the ones who are standing against progress the same way that those who supported the racist Jim Crow laws of the past also stood in the way of progress. And so persecutors who seek to marginalize us will believe that they are doing good in persecuting us. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16 verse 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Perhaps in our context, the hour is coming when whoever taxes your churches, whoever, whoever taxes your non-profit Christian universities, whoever taxes your non-profit Christian ministry charity organizations will think he's offering service to God. So the world is going to see this as a righteous cause against an evil people. The question, though, is how does God see us? How does God see us when we face persecution? That is really the only question that matters. We don't need to ask any other because God's opinion is all that matters. Peter's going to tell us what God's opinion of us is in these three verses here. He tells us in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter speaks here of a fiery trial, which on the one hand is fiery. It suggests intensity of suffering. And on the other hand, it is a trial, which suggests a testing, a purposeful testing, Peter actually says, it comes upon you to test you. Whose purpose is that? That can be none other than God's purpose. God is at work through this fiery trial of persecution 
for our good. And if that is the case, what is the proper response to it? Well, Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't assume then that persecution is something strange that's not supposed to happen. Don't assume that, that your life was supposed to be laid out in this pattern, this, this way you imagined, you dreamed, and, and here comes persecution to totally wreck everything that you had planned for yourself. And it's, it's also abnormal, it's also strange, it wasn't supposed to happen this way. Peter says, don't be surprised. The lie we are tempted to believe is that God's love must be demonstrated to us through pleasant circumstances and ease of life. And therefore, when we don't have pleasant circumstances, when we don't have ease of life, we have a tendency to assume what Eve assumed about God when the serpent lied to her. He must be holding out on us. He must not really love us the way the Bible says that he does. Now, where in the Bible does it tell us that pleasant circumstances and ease of life are signs of God's love? Where does it say that? Doesn't the Bible almost say the exact opposite? When you look at the history of God's people, when you look at the saints of old, can you name one of them who lived through life with ease and pleasantness? I can't. I can't even think of one. And yet, these are the people God loves. And of course, that's a a storyline that culminates in our Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God whose suffering was far beyond anything we can imagine. Don't believe the lie that if you're suffering, God must not love you. That is not at all what Scripture teaches. So instead of being surprised, Peter tells us in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This must be one of the most difficult commands in all of Scripture to obey. Rejoice in times of persecution. How can we do that? We can rejoice if we see persecution in the proper context. If we see it in the storyline that God tells us to see it in. And He tells us that it is in the storyline of Christ's own sufferings. If we see ourselves as sharing in the sufferings of Christ, then we can also see ourselves sharing in the glory of Christ that is to come. We know how the story of Jesus ended after his sufferings. He was raised from the dead. He was ascended to the right hand of God. He was given victory over his enemies. He has restored humanity to our proper place in exaltation over the cosmos. We know how this story goes. And if we have the privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ, to live out in our own lives a mini version of what Christ endured for us, Peter says it is something for us to rejoice in. Now, that doesn't mean that all suffering is a sharing in Christ's sufferings. He says, insofar as, which would indicate there are some ways we might suffer that are not sharing a suffering of Christ. That's in verse 15. We'll get to that in a minute. But he tells us here that when we are persecuted, when we are walking in the path of faith and we face suffering, it is an occasion for us to rejoice at the bigger story that we may rejoice when His glory is revealed. And so Peter says, don't be surprised, but rather rejoice. And he gives us an example of the fiery trial in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this is an interesting example. Peter has spoken of the fiery trial. And you'd expect, if he's going to give an example of fiery trial, he must give the most intense example you can imagine, right? Thrown into prison, starved, tortured, beheaded for the gospel. But he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Insult is part of the fiery trial. Now, we have this old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There's some wisdom in that, but it's really not true. Words have great power to hurt us. Words have great power to label us, to name us, to push us to one side of society. Words, insults, social perception has great impact on our lives. Words can affect the kinds of jobs you can and cannot get. Words can affect whether or not you're welcome into certain circles of society. Words can affect the trajectory of your life in one way or another. And Peter says here, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If man throws his insults your way, names you an outsider, pushes you to the margin, you are blessed. Why would we consider ourselves blessed in that situation? Here's how Peter's logic seems to go. If you get insulted for the name of Christ, that must be an indication that you've drawn out the world's opposition by your faithfulness to Christ. And if you've done that, the only way you could have done that is if the Spirit of God rests upon you. The Spirit of God has done that in you. The Spirit of God, the the anticipation of the glory that is yet to come, has made you the kind of person who would be insulted for the name of Christ. And so see the insult as simply confirming evidence that you belong to God. That the very same Spirit He placed upon His Son, according to Isaiah 11-2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. The very same Spirit rests upon you. And thus the world's opposition can only be to you encouraging confirmation that God has made you His own through His Son and put His own Spirit upon you. And so Peter tells us here, the world is going to hate you. The world's going to oppose you. But the true opinion that matters is God's, and in your suffering for the name of Christ, know that you have God's favor upon you. This is exactly how it's supposed to be, so don't be surprised when it comes. And then a second word of instruction about how to think about persecution, Peter says, stand firm through persecution because it is God's means of testing His people. Stand firm through persecution because it is God's means of testing His people. This in verses 15 through 18. When we face suffering, when we face persecution, our tendency might be to become bitter at God, to let the fear of man rule our hearts, and therefore to shrink back and compromise with the world in order to get them off our backs. To start 
going back to the Bible saying, well, maybe the 2,000-year tradition of how we interpreted this was wrong after all. Maybe marriage is not a man and a woman. It's to come up with creative solutions to get along so that the world will get off your back. And if we do that, if we compromise, if we shrink back from the truth, we will become indistinguishable from the world over time. But Peter tells us in these verses that seeing God's purpose at work in our persecution is what will give us the strength to endure it by faith, to stand firm so that we do not compromise, that we do not back off what we proclaim about God. And so he tells us in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, this is an indication, again, not all suffering is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Sometimes we can bring suffering on ourselves from the world because we are simply living in a selfish way. We are not loving our neighbors. We are being antisocial people. And Peter uses colorful examples, murderer, thief, probably his readers were not struggling with those sins in particular, but he, he moves along a spectrum from murderer to thief to evildoer, a more general term, and then he gets to that fourth term, a meddler. And that's one that is a lot easier to imagine about ourselves, isn't it? A meddler, one who gets involved in other people's lives in a way that is really not our business. I think there's a good warning here from Peter, a good qualification here to us, to help us separate in our minds the very natural offense of the gospel for which we should suffer and the other kind of offense, which is being offensive. In other words, don't assume that because you're facing opposition that it's always for the right reason. It very well could be because you're a jerk. It very well could be because you're a troll. Do you know what a troll is? We call them trolls on social media. Trolls are people who are always looking for a fight. They go on social media, they insert themselves into conversations because they're seeking to provoke a response. They relish the fight. They relish offending. And Peter says, if you're going to suffer for that reason, you're not, suffer you're not sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You're just being personally offensive. So just let that be a warning to us. If, if your temptation is to, to take on the world, but to do it in a way that provokes offense unnecessarily, let the gospel be offense enough, because it will be. Let the gospel be our offense, not our personal meddling in others' lives. Now, Peter goes on to tell us in verse 16, uh, he's given a list of, of different ways, different names under which we must not suffer. Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. But in verse 16, here's another name. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, if you suffer under that name, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What does it mean not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in that name? Well, think about the experience of persecution for being a follower of Christ. If you allow man the power to shame you, the power to make you feel like, yes, I'm, I'm really not doing the right thing by standing for truth here. 
I really should back off. I really should compromise. If you are ashamed of the truth and you back away from it in order to save yourself from suffering, Peter is speaking of one who is willing to fall away from the faith for his own sake. But rather the one who glorifies God in the name of Christian is the one who will stand on that name come what may. The one who will plant his flag as a follower of Jesus and let the world do what it will to him. Peter himself is a good illustration of both of these. In the gospel accounts, Peter, on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Peter is standing outside where the the Jewish council is putting Jesus on trial. And in that moment where he is tested three times, Peter denies that he has anything to do with Jesus. He's ashamed to be associated with a man who had clearly ticked off the wrong people. And so Peter failed, and he failed miserably. And yet this same man, if you read into the book of Acts, and you read into the post-Pentecost Peter, you read of a man who later on is standing before that same council that condemned his master. And they're telling him and the other apostles, we warned you not to teach in this man's name. And Peter's response in Acts 5, 29 is, we must obey God rather than men. So on the one hand, you have Peter being ashamed, shrinking back, compromising. On the other hand, you have Peter standing firm, glorifying God in the name of Christian. And this is what he's telling us to do here as well. And then he gives us a reason for why we should not shrink back in shame, but rather stand firm. And that reason is in the the verses 17 and 18, where he tells us, what is God's purpose through this all? What is God actually doing through the persecution of the church? And he tells us in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, that's an odd verse. Because when we see the word judgment, we normally think condemnation. And Peter is not saying it is time for condemnation to begin at the house of God. It is not time for God to condemn us. Is not what he means at all. In fact, Peter's writing in a context of Christians doing the right thing, not the wrong thing, standing firm on the gospel, suffering for it. So what is the judgment that Peter means? Well, judgment can be used to refer to really any kind of judicial action, and that includes God's action of separating out humanity into two groups. God dividing us, ultimately, at the final day, into the righteous and the wicked, so that the righteous who are in His Son may receive eternal life, the wicked who are outside of Christ may be condemned. This is going to happen on the last day, but Peter says, even now in the present time, through the sufferings, through the the messianic woes of this age, that work has already begun. That work of separating out within the house of God, the temple of God, which is the church. Peter has already called us a spiritual house in chapter 2, verse 5. That work is already happening, and it's happening through persecution. Now, how does this work? Well, think about it. If if a church is persecuted, that is really going to separate the men from the boys, isn't it? 
Persecution is naturally going to draw out, uh, out of the church those who are willing to compromise with the world in order to save themselves. In other words, those whose faith cannot endure it. Those whose faith is a mere outward profession and is lip service. Those people will be exposed by persecution. Jesus even uses an example of that in a parable about the sower. And he mentions uh, the, the seed that is in shallow soil and it springs up quickly but it doesn't have a deep enough root to survive the scorching sun. And Jesus connects that to trouble or persecution. When that comes, they immediately fall away. So Peter seems to be saying here that God's work is already happening for the final separation of humanity, and it's beginning in the house of God. Persecution has this effect of separating out those whose faith is not real, from those whose faith is. And he's drawing the conclusion in verse 17 that that if judgment begins with us, and if it involves this kind of intense suffering, the fiery trial that will prove our faith or deny it, what can we imagine then will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel at all? What will be the outcome? If, If God's own people will suffer in this age, how much worse will it be for those who are outside of Christ in the age to come. And he quotes in verse 18 from Proverbs eleven thirty one, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, scarcely there it really means with difficulty. If, if the righteous are saved with difficulty, what will be the outcome for the ungodly and sinner? Now, whose difficulty is that? It's, it's not God's difficulty. God's omnipotent. He has no difficulty. But it is difficult for us. Or as Paul and Barnabas said to the churches they planted, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It is through difficulties, through sufferings, through persecutions that we will arrive at our final salvation. And if that's the case for us, what can we imagine will be the outcome for those who do not have Christ at all? In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham with a bizarre command. He said, take your son Isaac up a mountain and offer him to me as a sacrifice. Now, the purpose of that command was not to have Isaac killed. God stopped Abraham before he did the deed. The purpose of the command was to reveal what was in Abraham's heart. It was a test of Abraham's faith. And as we look back on that story, we can see that if Abraham truly was believing God, if he truly trusted in Him, as Genesis 15, 6 declares, Abraham believed the Lord, he counted it to him as righteousness. If that was real and was not a sham, then Abraham would be uh, able to obey anything God says, willing to obey anything God says, because he trusts God. Faith, in other words, is revealed in obedience. And James tells us in James 2.21 that in that event of offering up his son in obedience to God's command, Abraham was justified by works. Now that can throw us Protestants for a loop because we confess very strongly the doctrine of justification by faith alone and we can see that clearly in Paul's letters and in other places in the New Testament. So what in the world does James mean when he says uh, Abraham is justified by works? It's important to understand he's not using the word justified the same way that Paul does. He's not saying Abraham was declared right with God, forgiven of his sins, and, and clothed with righteousness by works. 
That is not at all what James means. He's using the word justified to mean vindicated as a true believer. Proven true, in other words. So Abraham was proven, he was vindicated that his faith was real in the concrete experience of testing. For Abraham, that test was the form of a bizarre command from God. For us, that test very well may be some form of persecution. Will we stand firm through it and be vindicated? Or will we shrink back and be exposed as false professors of faith? This is the winnowing judgment of God that is already happening within His church in this present age. And so God has a purpose in it. And Peter says, because of that, stand firm through persecution. And then one last word here in our last verse. Entrust your soul to God in persecution because He is sovereign and seeks your good. Entrust your soul to God in persecution because He is sovereign and seeks your good. Notice the summary command of verse 19. He says, therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You notice that God is referred to here as a faithful creator. And both words are very important. He's he's called creator to emphasize his sovereignty over all that he has made. He is in control. He rules from heaven as creator, but he's also called faithful to indicate His steadfast love in seeking good to His people. As faithful Creator, He is able to accomplish all that He will. As faithful Creator, He wills to do good to us. So what is the conclusion from these two truths about God? It is to trust Him. He is able and He is willing to do good to us. If we are persecuted... Does that mean we are suffering according to God's will, as Peter says in verse 19? Are we suffering according to God's will? Yes, we are. We are suffering according to God's will if we are persecuted. That's that's the point he's making here. He's just made the point in verses 17 and 18 that this is God's winnowing process. This is his judicial work of separation within the house of God. This is his work. For the good of his church. Now that's odd to us. That is, that is a strange conception to wrap our minds around. That the very enemies who oppose us in what is clearly sinful action are in doing that merely fulfilling the will of God for our good. And it sounds odd, but if you're versed in the Bible's language about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it fits perfectly. It's much like what Joseph said to his brothers, his brothers who had sold him into Egypt. Not a good thing to do. If you're thinking about selling your brother into Egypt, just don't do that. But God had raised him up in Egypt so that he might bring salvation to the whole family in the time of famine that was to come. And so looking back on all of those events, Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And thus we have here 
a perfect expression that, yes, God is sovereign over all things and His good will is accomplished. And He is never to be blamed for any evil. And yet, there is no evil action that is performed outside of His permissive will, let's call it. No evil action that is performed outside of His plan for the good of His people. And the responsibility, the blame for sin still falls squarely upon those who sin. As the world persecutes us, God will judge them for it. And yet, in persecuting us, they cannot, they cannot thwart God's good purpose. They will merely fulfill it. So God is sovereign. God is good. Therefore, Peter says, trust Him. Entrust your souls to Him. When Peter used that word souls, it reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, this world may, may do all kinds of things to the outer man. May even destroy the outer man, but if your soul belongs to God the inner man is God's, you cannot be touched. And in the end, he'll raise up your body anyway. So entrust your souls to him. I want to speak a word here to children for a minute. Those of you who are children, I hope that you have learned a lot about trust as you've grown up in this church. I hope you've, you've learned that you can trust your parents who love you. You can trust other adults in this church who love you. But I want to call upon you, especially kids today, trust the Lord as well. Trust God for yourselves. You see, we who are your parents, we can teach you the truth. We can lead you to the truth. We cannot make your heart accept it. We cannot give you personal knowledge of God. That's something we have no power over. So I encourage you, as you grow older and as the natural course of life happens and you become, come, over time, you become less and less dependent on your parents. That's the way God made us. One day as you, you go out on your own, I want you also to become less and less dependent on your parents with regard to the faith that we've taught you. Because one day, you may be called upon to suffer in a way that, that my generation hasn't. And when that day comes, your parents' faith will not uphold you. Your parents' faith will not be enough. So call upon the Lord for yourselves. Learn how to pray for yourself at your own initiative. Learn how to call upon God in your times of need. Learn how to confess your sins to Him in your own practices Learn how to love Him and walk with Him. There's a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman and, and he, he ministers her, but she goes to the village where she lives and she begins to spread the word about this man, Jesus. Could this be the Christ? And she's, she's sharing the word. And, and Jesus ends up spending a couple of days there in that village. And, and in John chapter 4, verse 42, this is what the people of the town say to the woman who first told them about Jesus. They say... It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
You who are children, I want you to get to that point where you can tell your own parents, it is no longer because of what you tell me that I believe. It's because I know God for myself. And I've learned how to trust Him, and I've learned how to walk with Him. And when the day comes that I have to pay a price, it will be my faith that will stand firm. I promise you, your parents want nothing more than for you to say that one day. Now, to all of us, entrusting our souls to God is the very opposite of trying to control things. It's the very opposite of thinking that we can control things. One of the most freeing experiences in life is to relinquish control of what you simply cannot control. And if you think about it for a minute, if you could control your life, would you dare even try? Do you think you're competent enough to do that? I don't think I am. God is there for us to trust Him and trust our souls to a faithful Creator through the persecution, through the sufferings of this age, because He is sovereign and He is good. Will we ever face a decision as a church between compromising our doctrine or paying income taxes to the federal government as a church? Will you ever have to choose between a cherished friendship, and a moral conviction? Will you ever face a decision of calling evil good or losing your job? Will you ever face the decision of denying Jesus Christ or losing your head? I don't know the answer to these questions. I do know We must be ready for any one of those situations to come. If your child needed a life-saving operation immediately, you were sitting across a desk from a doctor who said to you, we need to go to surgery immediately or your child will die. Are you in that moment going to say, hold on, I want to see a price list so I can deliberate about the cost. Of course not. In that moment, the only thing that matters to you is the life of your child. Cost doesn't matter at all. The cost can be what it's going to be, but I'm going to save my child in that moment. And I know any parent in here would do the same. What is it that the world can take from us in following Christ? What price might we have to pay? Does it matter? Do we even have to think about it? Isn't Jesus worth far more, whatever it may be? Indeed, He is. So let us declare once more that He alone is our hope as we remember His death for us and as we proclaim His death until He comes here at the Lord's table again. And so if you're a believer and you have professed faith in Christ through baptism, and you are a member in good standing with the local church, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. If that's not true of you, if you are not a believer in Christ who has professed faith publicly, 
then I want to call upon you to know this Christ for yourself, to know this one who, whose death, resurrection, and ascension is your only hope of salvation. As we sang earlier, he, he's the only way to salvation. There is one God, one mediator between God and man. If you want to learn more about him, about following him through baptism, please talk to one of us after the service. Uh, but let's take a moment of silence here as we prepare the table.